Got your audio working now. Hopefully. Is that me? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. No, I just had it on mute while I walked upstairs. I wanted to make sure I was logged in early. Oh no worries. Just making sure you're you're all good. So we had a, a question from Chad. Is is that water kefir or or milk? Um, that was milk kefir I was referring to, not water kefir. Um, water, um, milk kefir actually does a better job than uh, lactobacillus in terms of breaking down um, different uh, plant nutrients, but also in terms of unlocking a much wider range of vitamin B. If you want to um, have a much bigger range of vitamin B uh, complexes for your plants to grow faster, uh, you'll get a much better re response uh, out of using a milk-based lactobacillus than to using um, a, uh, just a straight airborne uh, lactobacillus um, culture. So great way to help further improve your labs. Alrighty, um, thanks a lot for joining us, uh, Steve. Uh, do you want to uh, get started a little bit early? If I'm not, I don't, didn't want to jump in on anything that was happening before I just didn't oh, no want worries. to be late. We, we came in from the lunch break, so we uh, one of our sponsors was having a little connection issues, so we had a little bit of an open 15 minutes that Marty and I were filling, so we can get started sure, a few minutes. Sure, absolutely, whatever, whatever you want to talk about. Sure, so uh, a, lot of you, a lot of people don't know, uh, Breeder Steve was the first person to put anything in writing uh, on aquaponic cannabis way back in 1996 or 97, way back on overgrow.net. Uh, you were using net cups with, with hydrogen that you were putting the fish waste on. And uh, I remember reading that and going, oh, we can totally use this for that. And it totally got me on this whole crazy train. And here we are all these years later, and I'm talking to you uh, on a conference of it. So it's kind of funny. Uh, how well, it's all funny. Um, I appreciate, you know, so much how far you've taken it. And shared with so many more people and made it uh, more common knowledge. You know, there's a, it used to be what? You know, and now people know aquaponics. So, you know, they've heard of it. But before they hadn't heard of it. The first time I did it was in 94. When I first moved to Vancouver, it was, I went to a grow store that was a friend of a friend's. And I was telling them about this aquaponics system that I wanted to try out because, and I had wicked flour with me that I brought from outdoors in Ontario that buried BC Hydra, like people were just like, what the hell is this? Where'd you get this? <laughs> this is from back of a cornfield in Ontario. People were like, no, you know, they just couldn't believe it. But it, but anyway, so I, I had some credibility with the flower in my hand anyway. And uh, these guys were like, well, what, do you, what are you looking to do out here? I said, well, I'm really keen to try out aquaponics. I've read a lot about it, but I've never seen anybody do it with cannabis. Makes perfect sense. I got to try it. So they said, well, tell you what, you, you build us a system in the shop and you can take the equal amount of parts home with you. So I had to go into their shop and build, 
the first cabinet and set them up with that. And that was out in Burnaby. And then I was able to take, you know, the exact same materials home with the fan and the lights and everything, pumps and hoses and sprayers and whatnot. They didn't actually have sprayers because nobody had sprayers using them. They had them for aeroponics probably. But I remember that first one, all I did was put the pump, a small pump attached to half inch hard plastic line going into the bottom of the box where the roots would grow. And I just put a few slits in the thing with the razor just and, and that was it, they just spray into the box. And one of the things I found easiest, the very first times I did it too, I didn't even use Hydroton. I literally just had a six inch pot, regular six inch pot with a regular organic soil mix in it. But the trick was, you know, the first times that worked fine, but then I realized there's an easy way to get these things really moving quick. And I've never, I've always done it since was to cut two lengths of rope that you could feed through the bottoms of the pot and have four tails coming out. So those four wicks would hit the bottom and you'd have an inch or two of water left there with a little plug above the drain. So there was always a bit of water there. And I'd put a little air hose fizzing away on the bottom too, just so it wasn't stagnant. And uh, that way, if the pump went down, those things, they still had a six inch pot. They're not dying because I got that alone. But these huge roots that ran down because those four wicks would turn into big fat white carrots really fast with just huge clumps, like brooms of roots off them. And pretty soon you just couldn't lift the little pot out of the lid anymore because the roots were twice as wide as the pot. <laughs> they would be growing into the pot beside them. And I would usually, I did the first ones with uh, four plant spacing and like per light. And then I tried them with 36 beside it in another light. And uh, obviously it just depends how long you veg is the main thing there. But if you're doing four, you might want to do the screen of green. But if you're growing, which I love is those long tall ladies and just put them, I would even root them like sweet skunk, rooted on 12 hours so that it's already thinking flower before it goes in there. I don't want it stretching into branching in that. I just want it to be one long cola. So those I would put 36 to a light under a lid. And the same thing, even those would be in four inch pots with rocks, they would have those wicks going down and they were going down, depending on the big tables I start building later, they would be about two and a half feet deep at the deep end and maybe 18 inches to two feet deep at the shallow end. So there was always a bit of a slope in these big long tables, but in the, you got a picture even just coming out of a four inch pot. If you've got clumps of roots, <laughs> like just coming out like that, you have a spear on top, you know, really a spear. So that was uh, my, set up for them initially was really I like the redundancy of having the wicks and they just were a perfect guide down to that pool and they would wick water whether the pump broke or not and then the pump would create the mist when it turned on and sprayed in the box and then if I had the the hybrid system with the soil pots on top I could just hand water those two and later on on the bigger tables I did with hydroton I had a separate spaghetti line to the top feed and that spaghetti line ran off of the return pump that I had water flow from the aquarium into the flowering table. Then it would drain to the mothers 
and they kind of catch anything coming out of the flowering tables. And then just below the mothers, the mothers might be on risers, maybe six inch. And then on the floor, there would be a catch return uh, bucket. So that bucket, I would put two sump pumps in and one of them with the switch a little higher than the other, but they went up and joined on the same return pipe. And that return pipe to go up and over to the aquarium also had a little pipe coming off of it which did the drip lines or the spaghetti lines. They weren't drippers, they were pissers, let's say. And so they ran off the return pump. So they got a little top watering about every 20 minutes or so, whenever the return pump kicked on. And then the aquarium I had at that, at that room had a 3000 watts over a four by 12 table. I'm thinking of the one in my shop and then the four mother buckets and then the return pump and that was off a 90 gallon aquarium and I had a float level set about a quarter of the way in so the timer I had to come on roughly every 20 minutes for about two minutes whatever it took to spray down give it a good soak in the, in the spray box and then it would turn off and that took it down about a quarter of an aquarium every cycle so as the water drained out of the table through the mother buckets and then to the return, then it would get pumped back. Say 90% of it would get pumped back to the aquarium and 10% would go back on the table. And uh, the returns I put in a pipes around the top of the aquarium. And I had those pipes drilled like every inch or two centimeters so that there was, you know, 80 little holes. So when that sump pump kicked on, it just shot water in like 80 little jets straight back into the top of the tank, just frothing it with air, you know, really pulling a thousand times more air than having a little bubbler at the bottom of it, right? It just churned it from the top on every return. So like three times an hour. But if the water level started to go below that quarter that was used up on a watering run, then it meant that there was some evaporation happening and you're losing some water. So the float switch there was just like you'd have in a trough for horses. And it was hooked up to a hose 24 seven. And for about three years, I never had to physically water those plants. You know, it wasn't until I sold that place that that garden got torn down. But the, uh, <laughs> man, I, it would have gone on forever, you know, like, it, all you had to do was go work with your plants. You never had to carry water, never had to carry soil. You'd get the things, pull them out of the rocks, like over some Rubbermaids or something, shake the rocks back out. Usually you'd have to cut the pots apart because they'd, uh, the roots were so grown into the wicks and the mesh pots. There was really no way to say that. <laughs> I was like, what could we do? Like if they were metal or something, you could have burned them off or something, but they were just so, they would literally destroy the pot. They would be ripping it through because the roots are bulging out so much, right? So, so you'd have to cut the plastic pots off. That was the only waste of it because I'd recycle the rocks right away. They would just go back into new pots, fresh wicks, and they would go back in the same system. It's not like you stop and clean up the tanks or, you know, the tables. You, you want it all alive. It's working. You just leave it, right? So it was really a hoot to run that system. And it blew a lot of people's minds when they came in that shop. Because I had the aquarium set out of the room, so it was a glassed-in grow room, and it was dialed in with digital CO2 monitors and the whole thing, and the air 
cooled lights, which were the big thing at the time. And uh, people would just sit there just stunned and look at it. And one thing, the first thing people would think of aquaponics was, well, I heard it's just good for lettuce and it won't make any weight. I had beefsteak tomatoes that were ripping the vines, just falling off them, you know, like, well, forget about that part because <laughs> look at this, right? And you could totally pull the same weight you'd get out any any other way. And uh, it's not it's not even all about the weight, as you know. Like back then, it, people were really, weight was the thing that growers talked about. It always had to have quality enough for bag appeal, basically. But other than that, how many pounds of light, right? So that was all people would talk about, as long as it looks good enough. And then there's lots of, there were definitely heady people that like to grow special things for themselves. But your standard commercial guy, even if it was eight lights or whatever, half of them didn't even smoke. You know, they just want to grow something. So the people that didn't smoke, they were just going to stick to the general hydro and rock. Well, they got no incentive to grow something that much tastier because the most their guy pays is 24 a pound or whatever. So they're not, they're not trying to do it for their head. They're not changing really, you know? So there was a lot of uh, a standard mentality, let's say, or mediocre mentality. And for me, it was really about flavor and head. I was total head stash grower for the five years before I even thought about moving into the commercial side of it. And at that point, it was only because the hobby seed breeding I'd been doing turned into massive demand on seeds after I donated some. I said, well, boy, oh boy, I should really be making rooms full of seed. That's the best thing to get everybody growing. And I started making Spice of Life seeds in aquaponic systems, you know, so that's uh, those early seeds. I did them a lot in soil too. And over the years, probably more in soil, but off the get-go, I was doing them in my aquaponic system. But lots of fun. And I, I would always do it aquaponics unless there was something in my way. So sometimes... It would take, okay, well, I can get the soil in real quick, but all the fittings I need to plumb this warehouse, it's going to take a little bit longer. So I might run a place for soil for a bit while I got everything I needed, like the big aquariums, even the big custom ones. Man, nice stuff. But I had, I was really irritated when I had to leave Switzerland, where I chose to, because things were getting awkward there, let's say. But I had just got everything there to finish off the warehouse in full aquaponics with a big custom tank and everything. I did have a tank there and I used the sweet water for watering the organic soil pots, but the big recirculating system I wanted to build this whole area out of, I just had all the fittings there and that and after that summer's greenhouses, I used the warehouse to dry all the greenhouses. And then for the fall, I had everything there to start setting up. And then in like October, things got weird, so I split. But I was I sold the warehouse to Shanty actually, and uh, but I had left everything sitting there to make the kick-ass aquaponic system that I'm sure never got done. So I was a little sad about that. But live and learn. So uh, someone asked, uh, "What's bioponics?" Because you mentioned the word bioponics. Yeah, that's what I called my system when I was building. I called because there's you know aquaponics is widely known or not widely known as far as grass goes. And uh, you could explain it to people as aquaponics. And But aquaponics was really growing them without soil. And because I did a hybrid system often where I put soil pots in the top, I just said, well, I can call this something new. I'm just going to call it bioponics. <laughs> awesome. 
So uh, tell us, you, you're doing some really cool stuff down there in Colombia with some some bioponics on a massive scale. So tell us a little about what's going on down there and, uh, and what you got going on with the coaches and all the different stuff down there. <coughs> well, it's taken a long time because the regulations are massive uphill battle and uh, it's really been a struggle, but we've kept it going and really exceeded as far as um, getting anywhere in the regulatory front. So we were the first company to register your characterized genetics, which you have to do a characterization of the genetics you've registered before you can use them commercially. And before you can use them commercially, you have to get a quota for every plant you put out. So you apply for the quotas in January, they might say, okay, you wanted to plant 20,000 Santa Marta gold seeds, you can plant 20. You know, but they don't tell you till May, <laughs> you know, so they drive you nuts as far as the research stuff. And if it's under 1% THCCBN combined, it's non-psychoactive. There's 1% to the cutoff. So then it doesn't need field or security or quotas. But we had the largest THC quota in Colombia this year, a little over 100,000 plants. And I have 60 acres or 24 hectares fenced for psychoactive with 24 armed 24-hour armed guards there and, you know, military-grade security system, really, it's pretty intense. And uh, we do some phenomenal quality there for, but it's strictly a medical program and it's, you, you can't sell flowers in Colombia, so everything's got to be milled if you're selling it to another processor or you extract it in-house. So the value we can do there is pretty exceptional. And I've kept it totally bio from day one and really struggled to do that. You know, first we'd be buying pallets and pallets of bat guano, this Colombian guano, but the uh, now we've got bat boxes all the way around the periphery, you know, and we get starting to collect our own bat boxes and under the bat boxes, one of the other motivations for putting up the bat boxes was underneath them, provides the ledge that wasps need to make a nest and, the, and because there's lights there in the vegetative areas to keep stuff vegging you attract every moth in the jungle right because we're in the boonies and there's no lights around there <laughs> even the town doesn't have street lights i need it or uh, maybe one or two if you're right into it but not a lot and uh, it's you know, very, very rural. So if you've got, you know, a football field of lights out there, you're getting insects coming that you never imagined, right? So it's quite interesting to have those. I like, know, well, we get the bat boxes going, they'll have lots to eat, but also the moths lay caterpillars, budworms in your buds, as you know, and those are totally brutal. And the, and you'd see, I've got to get a good picture of it still, but you can see quite frequently while you're walking in the fields, wasps grabbing caterpillars out of buds and flying away with them. It's like, yeah, you know, so you're like, I want to, I want those things everywhere. So if you don't like wasps, you will not like my field because my field is virtually protected by wasps at this point. But the, uh, if you see them eating budworms, you, you become fast friends, you know, <laughs> but they don't eat them. What they do is, and I actually just posted some pictures of these. But they, they take them and then they, they sting them, paralyze them, take them away, and they wrap them up in dirt and make these little cocoon balls 
and they've laid their eggs inside the caterpillars and then they bury them they make these cocoon balls so you get like these series of balls along plant trays or under tables or wherever they can find a ledge to stick them to and there's wasp larvae growing inside these mummified caterpillars you know they totally they totally desecrate the budworms and we do not like budworms do we you know so they so to water this place we dug a three million liter reservoir and stocked it with native you know fish plants crocodiles birds show up obviously you don't have to bring the ducks they'll find it you know but it, it's uh it's big enough that you could go jet skiing in it. <laughs> it's huge. The The pump station in the middle is like an island, right? There's like a little floating island out there that you can get to on a dock. And that's a pump station. And then it pumps to, you know, a man-made hill. We're in the prairies there, so it's totally flat. So we've got, you know, from a lot of the excavation, we've got the big uh, ledge at one side. And at the top of that, we put, I think, or is it 10, 15,000 liter reservoir up there? So if the water coming out of, of the pond gets pumped up to this reservoir, and then from there, it's gravity down to the different blocks within the first 60 acres. But that reservoir is going to be big enough to carry the 800. We've got a total of 2,000 acres to work with there, but only secured for THC 60 acres. So it's 24 hectares secured out of the first 89 we have. And then we've got an option to expand in two 400 acre perfect rectangle cornfields, basically. So as soon as I have my seed ready and I'm not transplanting clones, I'm going to hit those other fields of 800, uh, the other 800 hectares. So that's something to look forward to. But I wanted to build that reservoir so big that I didn't uh, need to build another one too soon. I'd rather have one really big one and try and sort of feed the whole farm from that. And, you know, it's somewhere, there's not a lot of beaches around here. It's in the dead center of the country. So we're once we have everything tickety-boo there, I'm going to get a bunch of sand dumped in the one spot so we have our own playa. It'll be a hoot. But I swear you could bloody kite surf in there if you're good enough to go back and forth. It's just... It shocks me still. I just giggle and laugh when I look at it. Like I never ever dreamed I would have built a reservoir this big for aquaponic use. And it's not all recycling, but the stuff from the uh, greenhouse is being set up so that the greenhouse areas where there's uh, some propagation, but also some seed production and that, that those areas will feed and drain back to that reservoir but other than that everything's directly sown in the fields and the lines down the fields just put that sweet water right in the earth and it just brings so much life to the earth in the dry season the water gets extremely green like a shamrock shake and i've grown plants there without even using anything else no tastings or compost or anything just straight in the crappy local soil which is garbage it's like five and a half ph but still just for fun you can stick stick a seed or a clone in there and just take that green water and put it on and watch it grow like it's ridiculous that water is so rich in the dry season and then in the rainy season it can get quite clear because there's just so much fresh water coming in all the time but uh, it's interesting to, to see it. And I can't wait to have you down there. You're going to dig it.
Oh yeah, super excited. So what are some of the pest management methods aside from the uh, the wasp army? Uh, one other thing I was thinking of is I could just imagine some dudes coming in to steal stuff, coming in like totally like get decked out like to head to toe with like all the latest guns and then just getting mobbed by the wasps and none of it matters, right? Like yeah. kind of a funny scenario, but uh, oh, I'm, man. I'm sure you're in a, in a safe area. I didn't mean to imply oh, that. Oh my God. No, no, no. Yeah. There's, there's just, the chances of anybody getting at that field without getting shot are extremely low. Like there's like ex special forces guy, two gates, two fences before you're anywhere near that field, you know? But if you can make it through those two checkpoints, you can have it. <laughs> if not, you know, you catch them, you know, they get stung yeah. by the wasps and you feed them to the crocodile, yeah. right? And if, that's <laughs> it, if we get them, they're going to the crocs, right? They become plant food, part of, part of the system, right? Yeah, that's what I always said. The best thing to do with rippers is feed them to the piranhas. That was before I had crocodiles and we just had piranhas. And then you could always take the bones and teeth and run them through the rock crusher. They make great bone meal. So you, there you, you, go. You, can make WC you grind their bones to grow down. your bread. Cook it down, make your water soluble calcium. Anyways, um, <laughs> there's, there's everybody's got something good in them, right? <laughs> we're, we're gonna make what, a, we're make a Halloween story about a very proficient. Yeah, maybe just nutrients, but some everybody's yeah. got something in them. <laughs> Jason Voorhees takes up natural farming, right? Yeah. <laughs> Um, anyways, uh, so uh, what type of pe pest management pro uh, uh, methods are you using out there at that scale, especially with the jungle and everything? Uh, what are some of the stuff that you found that works or maybe some stuff that you found that definitely doesn't work? Well, that's an excellent question. And uh, our go-to for plants in the greenhouse especially, because in the, the dry season, that greenhouse really is too hot. It's not that well um, cooled. And it's hot anyway, so and it never freezes. So you've got spider mites outdoors there, which in Canada really aren't a problem because it freezes every winter. Maybe in Vancouver or something where it doesn't, but most of Canada you wouldn't see spider mites outside really. The uh, but down there they're a problem, and and especially in the dry season when it's extra hot and dry is when they thrive, as you know. And I get them to spray. Uh, Ajiajo, which is the garlic hot pepper spray. Obviously, we can grow our own garlic and hot peppers, which we've been doing, and then follow that up with diatomaceous earth. So that greenhouse once, I don't know how often, maybe it's probably not even once a month anymore, but probably once a month before they would get a, a day with the ajiajo spray and put that top and bottom through a couple guys walking through with sprayers getting it everywhere and then we would come in and just hit diatomaceous earth into fans and the puffers and just fog it so it looked white with diatomaceous earth stuck because it's only veg plants right so you're not too worried about i wouldn't want to i wouldn't do that to bud period but if it's all mothers and juveniles who cares you know they can be covered in ge and washes off in no time once they go out right but that keeps them super clean. And we, uh, but they would spray with the garlic hot pepper more than use the DE. The DE would be an occasional thing. There's also some Bovaria getting sprayed. We've had uh, root aphids is one of the nasty ones we've had probably come in with the rice hulls because we'd use rice hulls in the soil mix there. It's very common local, you know, 
perlite substitute, which I don't like perlite. I mean, people say, oh, perlite's great. I think it works great. But you get this fine dust that is bad to inhale, and you don't really want that everywhere. You know, it's not like it's just come out of the earth like that, you know. Even with DE, I'm like, whatever, it just washes back down. Harmful, harmless to people, but perlite dust isn't really harmless to you, you know. DE, you still want it. You don't want to inhale mass amounts of it. You got to wear a mask if you're handling it and goggles. You don't want it in your eyes. But it's, I just think it's such, and it's used in such a less volume than a medium is. So perlite's so ubiquitous. And it does work awesome. Like, totally, no, you can put the perlite in the tray and root your clone straight in it. You know, that's fine. But coconut chips, you can do the same thing. And those are nice, but they're also uh, a little more of a specialty item. Whereas the cascarillas, the rice hulls, they're just totally common. They're for sale up and down the highway all around us, just other farmers. And they're so right. cheap, right? right. And it's, it's the most local thing. Great source of silica, too. Yeah, that's right. So that's a big part of our soil mix. And we usually use cocoa that is quar and strand. So, and then we have our own little uh, worm castings, compost areas, and make some biochar. Uh, I don't know if they're still doing bokashi. They were bringing in some bokashi from a friend of a friend. I don't know if that's still on, but I haven't been down all 2020, right? I came back. It's like getting up to a year now that I haven't been able to go to the farm, which is driving me nuts because I have a really nice selection crop going on right now and I don't get to smell the plants. I can see them, have them measured, have them analyzed, have them weighed, whatever, but I can't smell them. It's driving me nuts. So I, my guys will take the camera through and show me what's going on in the field with the side-by-sides. But I think uh, some of them will still be going in November, and I'm going to try and get back down there. I think uh, some of the earlier ones will be down before then, but they think flower extra fast there. Like things I picture taking eight weeks, they take six. I can't believe it. I wouldn't believe it if I didn't see it myself. And I've seen it repeatedly. It blows my mind. But the light is really intense, and the flower is really intense. And luckily, one of the things that was a draw about Columbia is people are allowed in the constitution to have 20 plants. So that is better than Canada, which people are only allowed four, and that doesn't even stand in all the provinces. It's bullshit. And four is a joke anyway. How could you pick four flavors, you know? But the uh, in Columbia, at least there's 20, and there's no restrictions, like if your neighbors can see them or they're two feet tall or whatever. <laughs> Canada had some real dumb ideas about how they were doing it. But in Columbia, you can have 20, you know, trees. It's, uh, and you can finish the flavors that you just don't get in higher latitudes and indoors. Hardly anybody does the exciting narrow-leaf plants indoors. Hardly anybody. You get a few people. Well, it's understandable. You know, they're pencils. But, but if you can grow those pencils where they're supposed to be, boy, oh, boy, they, they just have aromas and tastes like, the kids that never see anything that wasn't kosher cookies, they just don't understand what they're missing yet. Because <laughs> yeah. it's not plants that you're going to grow in, in North America, really, unless you're totally fanatic. Like I had some in the 90s in my room in Vancouver, but they would sit there at the sides 
well, I did two crops of something else. Like I could do two crops of grapefruit. Well, I had one Santa Marta goals finishing because there were 16 weeks and these were eight, you know? So it was okay. I didn't care. It was just, I was keeping that for myself. I swear I didn't even share that stuff with my friends. Those pencils were so sexy and tasty. They smelled like that cherry pie filling. Like if you opened a can of cherry pie filling, it was like that. It was just like, oh, it's just so candy. And, and I never really, uh, I always had a, a sweet spot, you know, a sweet tooth, let's say, that I always loved the ones that had a proper sweetness to them. And it's not so much that the Santa Marta Gold was really sweet like that. It was just the high notes in the perfume and just this exotic aromas that were so like floral, but things you didn't know, things you couldn't describe. You know, how would you describe Lang Lang and Jasmine if you'd never smelled Lang Lang and Jasmine? Right? So the, it was blowing my mind. The cherry pie filling was the first thing I remember thinking about that stuff. And I've just really had a strong love affair with that plant. And then all all other equatorials excite me too, generally, you know, whether it was Angolan or Nigerian, Congo or Thai, I really get a kick out of these equatorial plants. And, and that's fine just to have something different. I'm sure if I did nothing but hit those for a year, I might miss a hit of some strong kush or something, you know, but maybe not, you know, I really like the narrow beast. But, you know, having a variety is everything. So being able to swap them up and switch them is great. Having a variety is what it's all about. So the, uh, but for pest treatment uh, in a circle, I, I come back to a really pretty straightforward garlic hot pepper spray mainly. Yeah, and that heat, those narrow leaf cultivars really are key. I see a lot of people in Oklahoma and to the lesser extent when I was in Zimbabwe trying to grow like super wide leaf stuff and just they're scorched. You know, they're not made for that heat. Those leaves are just roasting and it's not made for that. They don't get the airflow around them, you know. Yeah. The, uh, they, need, they need to not just to cool down, but to dry off and, and the tropics are notorious for heavy duty water when it comes down it's torrential right you can you don't get a light rain very often when it rains it seems to be like a waterfall's passing over and i remember the first time i had big plants out down there in my personal patch and uh and i i had been away for a bit and i came back down and they were small when i'd left and they were nine feet tall when i got back and i was like oh my god these are gorgeous big sexy beasts and uh, not in the licensed farm, but just in the personal patch. And the one night it poured rain so hard, it was tied for the hardest rain I've seen in my life, which was monsoon in Hong Kong. And it's really just like a lake falling out of the sky on you. It's just so thick, the water. And I thought, oh, those beautiful plants are all going to be just plastered to the ground tomorrow. There's no way they could survive this. And when I went out there the next day, couldn't even tell it rained that it was so hot and sunny already the ground was starting to dry out like it was firm it wasn't dusty but it was like the plants nothing not even you know a branch out of the place i couldn't believe it i was like yeah if these were if these weren't these plants they would have been in trouble probably <laughs> you know a lot a lot of types would have been too stiff but these were just like bamboo and they just they go with it and so you've got to pick the plants for your site. But I do try everything there. And the surprising thing for me is that in the dry season, I can finish absolutely anything I take down there. 
there's no plants that won't finish there in the dry season. But in the rainy season, I thought, you know, probably only 20% of the plants will work in the rainy season, but it was 80. 80% 80 of the plants I would try there. If I took 100 different seed lines down, every time almost, I would try about 100 different seed lines. And this is the fourth year we've been doing it. And it's amazing. Only about 20% doesn't finish. And the first ones to rot were the sweet tooth, so they never get planted there again in the rainy season, at least. But they, but lots of other things finished, and some of them were surprising because they were also, you know, very tight buds that uh, you thought, well, those are so tight, they're not going to like the humidity. But they were so tight, they were impregnable, and the water just ran off them like a duck's pack. They were just like an oiled golf ball or something. So those. <laughs> Those are nice. So you find some plants that have dense, heavy, uh, modern hybrid nugs that are you know, really, really rock hard. And they, they don't have any problems with the mold because the water just doesn't get into them. But if you have ones that are at all spongy, they're toast, you know, those usually are toast. There's a, the exception of those if they survive, but just that structure doesn't do well. If it's a lot of fingers, it doesn't do well, too, because it has too many uh, places to trap dead bugs, I think, so that when they get wet, inside all the little fingers, all the foxtaily fingers, if you have ones like that, they, they'll get bugs in them, and the bugs die or poop or whatever, so they'll start to rot sooner than other things, too. But either the long, skinny fingers, which are my personal favorites, or the really rock hard tight ones that just shed water. Those are your best bets in the, when, the, when the rain's coming. And when it rains there, it's traditionally, it was different this year with climate change, I guess you, God knows, but the, uh, the, uh, the weather's been shifting, they say quite a bit. Like I've talked to friends with their fathers and grandfathers, they'll say, you used to always see this plant flowering April 1st. And they really have, the seasons down, you know, because they've been around so many of them, and uh, the the traditional rain reports when I looked in this area it was eighty percent of the rain came in May. So I'm thinking, well, that's not so bad. You get all the rain at once, stock it up in your reservoir, and then you got pretty dry fields after that, and that's ideal. So the rain you get some in April. There's a pretty wet shoulder season in June. But then usually you can get a couple of nice months like July and August. And then September and beginning October, they'll get another light rainy season, they call it. And then by middle of October and on to November, December, December is the hottest month of the year, December and January. But December is really considered the hottest month. But uh, the rain wasn't 80% stuck to May in the last year and it shifted a bit but even from the first year it probably was and from the historical records it was but we've been getting it spread a little bit longer but maybe not all as much in may so it's it is what it is you work with it but you're farming in a field so rain isn't always a bad thing like i really count on rainwater to veg those plants for quite a while you know and then uh in the dry season, boy, you better have water going or you could be in trouble. But the, uh, it's, it's so dry that there's grass fires around. So we have, we don't have grass fires within the fence because everything's cleared and cleaned up pretty well. So the, but 
you know, you see him driving to work sometimes and you just laugh because I'll be talking with people on, you know, a show or something or online and they'll say, yeah, the growing in the tropics is terrible because it's so wet all the time. I'm thinking, I've got fucking grass fires right in front of me right now. What are you talking about? You don't know anything about growing in the tropics if you think it's always wet all the time. There's a rainy season and a dry season and in every area, it's very variable. There's some areas where it is always rainy. You know, you go to the Darien Gap or something and it is raining all the time. But it's not the whole, there's also, you know, deserts on the equator. So you've got a real range to play with. And especially in Colombia, there's 11 climactic zones, according to agricultural mapping. And we're in the Orinoquia, which is the Orinoco River Basin which is the one north of the Amazon. So the Amazon basin is just below us. And you get a lot of the same migratory birds in that there. It's actually one of the things, you know, it's not a well-touristed area, but one of the things people go there for is for bird watching because in the, there's really, you see some spectacular birds passing through sometimes. And I always have to ask my guys what they are. And only one of them really knows that. The rest of them are like, I don't know, blue. You know, <laughs> it's a big zoo, you know. <laughs> but I, I get a kick out of all the wildlife because it's stuff we don't see here. And we just had those big ant bears, the tamanduas. We just had one of those make it in. And I don't know how he got in because those fences are not nice. And he must have come through the grates in the... We've got a stream, but I mean, he was, he was noticed inside the security perimeter. So I'm thinking he must've come through the grates in the stream because the, they can't dig under the fence. We've got a meter concrete base of the fence around 60 acres. Like it's just a ridiculous fence. And then you come in and there's another one inside that. So there's the, there's no way he went under the fence. And I really doubt he came over it because it's all barbed wire too. And they're not really a, a spry bear, those ones, so, but super neat with the big long snouts. Yeah, we've had, I always get a kick out of all the flora and fauna. Columbia is really a special place for that. And it's worth going for anybody that is interested in nature because anywhere you go there, you have such distinctive you know, environments and climates. There, there's the Kokora Valley, we've got the world's tallest palm trees it looked like they're straight out of a Dr. Seuss picture, you know, like there's, there's the closer to me, there's a Canyo Cristales, which is a river of rainbows and is, is in the rainy season, you've got to see it and it's all colored up. And if you do hit it in Google images, Canyo Cristales, you'll be like, I have to go there, you know, and it's just, I haven't even been yet. That's somewhere I want to go still. But when I get down there, I'm always working and it's not by, as the crow flies, it's not that far. But by roads, it's really too far. So you have to plan on taking a little plane because time is always of the essence. And uh, yeah, I just haven't made the effort yet, but in the right time of year. But I'm going, definitely going to do that. And if anybody wants to come with me, that'll be an epic one because that is somewhere, it is such a magical looking place that I feel like I have to do a pilgrimage there to just gobble mushrooms and swim in that river. And so you're all welcome. Please join me. Awesome. Um, what uh, so? What are some of the differences you've noticed with aquaponics uh, cannabis versus soil grown, or aquaponics versus other traditional methods? You've done a lot of comparison growing, uh, especially at scale. What are some of the differences that you've noticed? 
the number one thing I noticed is the texture of the smoke. And this doesn't hold true for all aquaponics because just like hydroponics, some of it is done better than others. And uh, if, if you just feed it pellets, I've seen guys do an aquaponics where they had fish pellets floating around in the reservoir long after feeding time. And, and you know that they're just making pellet tea, I call it, you know, where it just, the, then the pot smells like fish food, which is not an attractive smell. It's horrible. If, if you're using pellets or flakes and you open up some goldfish flakes, think how nasty that smells. So if you just let those steep in your reservoir and you put in so many, the fish can't even finish it, your weed's going to suck. It's going to taste and smell like that fish food smell. But if you keep a healthy reservoir that's, you know, more real food, particularly, um, <laughs> the less processed, the better. And, you know, I've gone as far as throwing cheeseburgers into the reservoir, but <laughs> that's, that's another story, really. But usually I would use you know, feeder goldfish or feeder guppies and have them eating, eating live food when possible or frozen brine shrimp and stuff like that. The, uh, but really I came to see, especially once I had big Oscars in there, I just fed it like a garbage disposal. Like I could throw in, you know, any, <laughs> anything and they would eat it. <laughs> but one of the easiest things to get nutrition out of the tank is simply light on the water. So over a 90 gallon, I would have a 400 watt halide, but you could also have sunlight hitting it because you'll have algae growing and it's really the start of everything is when the sunlight hits the water and there's some air on an aerated rock where it's wet and dry. Boy, oh boy, stuff will start growing on that, right? And the and I would make a log of Steve's special blend and put that in, which was a dry mix of all kinds of organic components. And when the sun, with the either lamplight or sunlight hitting that log, it just grow into a log of algae like overnight, and it would be covered in algae eaters, because I had maybe ten, twelve different types of algae eaters in the pond, and some of them would eat the red algae, and some of them would go in the brown algae, and some of them like the fuzzy algae, and they all had the like preferred algae. But when the log went in there with the dry mix it just became this green log and they would all sit there and just huff on it, just huff on it. But so if you can keep clean, you know, you know, fairly natural things happening in there, you know, cheeseburger, it's real food still. It's not a flake at least, you know, it's like a pellet. It's, and the pellets and flakes are typically made of ground up fish and they just smell like dead fish. And there's, you don't want it to smell like dead fish. You, you won't get any fishy smell from aquaponic system if you're doing it right. But the thing that it sold me on it the most was the texture of the smoke done well. Is it's running at such a low PPM, there's no need for any flushing or anything because it's just naturally ultra low the whole time. And the plant's taking what it needs all the time. It's always alive and available, but you're not force feeding it. So there's never that overfed um, excess consumption where the bud won't burn and it's harsh on your lips. With the well done aquaponics, the first toke, you know, you get that first toke taste down to the end. Like you want to get, you want to be hitting your roach and it still tastes like the beginning of the joint. You don't want it to taste all tarry and nasty, which 99.99% of everything does, right? So you want this light, light texture of smoke where it's very airy, 
and where the ash is white, not even gray. You would, the cleaner it is, the nicer it is. So uh, is there any, um, any methods or techniques or things that you've figured out to solve problems in aquaponics that you've then later applied as well to your soil in terms of methods or uses or anything like that? I don't think so. I think the main takeaway was just to use the living sweet water on the soil all the time rather than trying to mix up a tea. Like it's okay to mix up a tea. I'll still mix up a tea if I want to for <laughs> the soil plants. I don't, I'm not, I'm not opposed to making teas for soil plants, but the living water that's coming out of the bottom of a fish pond or an aquarium, you just don't need much beyond that. Like it really puts so much you know, life into the soil, I, I can get away with perfectly delicious crops using nothing but water pumped from the bottom of a pond. It's that simple to me, you know, I'm a very basic person. If I don't have to do a lot of calculations, <laughs> don't have to carry anything, great, you know, I like to set things up easy. <laughs> so uh, uh, what are some of the other advantages you've noticed in terms of, of uh, the plants. I know you, I'm sure you've had the same experience with the increased growth speed with the, the fish nutrients and the, in the uh, aquaponics. What are some of the other things uh, or that and, and, and what are some of the other traits that you've noticed, I guess, uh, in that kind of uh, sphere? Well, it's not much beyond that, you know, other than, you know, maximum growth rates, like you're saying, I, I did lots of trials in, you know, top end hydro and I was never, it never exceeded, you know, they, they, they would both, the, the plant reaches its potential either way. If it's perfectly healthy, it reaches the potential either way. So the yield is kind of a non-issue to me because they both, you can get a yield either way. It really comes down to A, it's easier because you don't have to monitor quite as much once it's established, you know, when you, you've got it cycling through you don't really have to do a lot in the way of monitoring. Like I said, I had a constant float valve adding water to that reservoir until they ripped the place down. So that means I never changed the reservoir. If you had hydroponics, you'd be changing the reservoir every now and then and flushing all the nutrients down the drain to help out with your algae bloom in your local lake or whatever. And <laughs> with aquaponics is more eco-friendly because you're never running it to, to waste down the drain you're just recycling that water when it's a closed loop. And if they run to waste, it's running to a field where it's not really waste, it's just doing its thing. So the, uh, for me, it's an eco-friendly choice. It's a lazy man's choice because I don't have to add the water or change the reservoir. And I just find uh, such a general health. There's no burnt tips on the leaves, you know, it's just the shiny green. And if it's, if the plants are happy, and I'm not doing extra work because of it, it's awesome, right? So I like to set it up so I can sit back and watch it for a while, you know, not have to be struggling with it all the time. Are there, so I know you did the, the million seed search and have grown a lots of different types of cultivars in aquaponics and in soil. Um, is there any particular cultivars you found really excel in aquaponics or any type of background of plants that seem to really excel? No, I honestly, I've never found any that didn't. Like it just, I, I know what you're saying is lots of times when you do selections, particularly from seed, if you ran, say you started a hundred seeds and you took a cutting from each 
plant and you put one into soil and one into rock wool, some of them will do better in soil and some of them will do better in rock wool, right? That's generally the case. Sometimes you'll have the same favorite in both selections, but more often than not, one of them will shine better in one environment than the other. And with uh, the aquaponics, it wasn't so much that, just that any session that I used, there was none of them that went like, oh, I don't like it here. You know, they were all doing well. So I, I couldn't say I had a favorite. It's a, I would try any session, you know, under any environment, but, and you may come out with a better selection from a population if you started the seed in one or the other. But if I'm, I'm not finding uh, any difficulty with any plant to like, oh, I just can't grow this one aquaponically. I've never seen that. So what are some of the cultivars that you've really been uh, working with, I guess, uh, in the last six months to a year? What are what has got you tickled pink or what are you really uh, focused on in, with your programs right now? Okay, out of the local stuff, which I like to cross everything with, is uh, predominantly Santa Marta Gold or Punta Rojo. Those are my favorite of the equatorials in Colombia, really. I, I'm not a Mango Biche fan, really. So we've done some crosses with it, but... I've never been a big mango beach fan. Like, it's just something I don't like about the smell of it. Or the, it and I find it's a much weaker plant. The other two are a stronger plant than the mango beach, at least where I'm growing it right now. And, and uh, in it's more highland Columbia, and I'm more lowland. I'm not totally sea level. I'm at like 370 meters, I think. But that's nothing there. I've seen plants there up to just over 3,000 meters altitude. So 37 or 370 meters where I am is that's quite low. It's considered you know a hot zone, and so the, a lot of things. If you want to bring some you know high latitude CBD plants down, they might not really be acclimatized to that yet. So you're going to have to do a little uh, crossing to hybridize them until they until they're more comfortable. You know, but the of the modern hybrids that I've taken down. I've uh, I've got a few classics going like the Skunk Big Bud, Matanuska Thunder, uh, and what's some of the other ones? Moby Dick. Those ones were from a Spanish seed lines. You know, I know the Matanuska Thunderfoot's not from Spain, but that's where the seeds came from for that. I can't remember the name of the seed company actually that those ones came from. But, and then from the U.S., I'd say the most impressive ones I've had in the last year or two have been uh, from Sin City Seeds. So I've never met those guys. I don't know them, but I was impressed with uh, some of their lines worked really well down there. Some of them not so much, um, but uh, the ones that did really shone, there was the uh, oh, Platinum Delights and the Slime Cookies, the Blue Lime Pie, Blue lime pie is a very beautiful aroma and it does really well as far as quality plant goes, but it's a floppy plant. So it has, it's no good for me for production. So I can't use it in production because I need plants that are erect and stand up on their own. And the platinum delights and the slime cookies were two that were really nice high potencies. They were repelling, particularly the slime cookies, repelled spider mites. Like they won't eat it. There was, I had, two lines that wouldn't the mites wouldn't touch and there was they had some of their other ones in lines beside it there was a treasure island and thunderstruck or something around it and they were our cbd crosses but they 
the spider mites love those plants and they would tent up because in the selection crops i don't spray anything for bugs in the selection crops i just let them feed and i i want to see what plants because often i find the spider mites will go straight to the sweetest plants and then i know oh this is a really nice one so I, i'll go to i'll find the plants half the time because the mites will lead me to them Whereas then I'll find like, wow, there's a whole row there with no mites on it and everything around it's got mites. What the hell is that, right? So then you go and check that out. So we find some really neat uh, things when you just leave them be, you know? And if they're going to production, of course, then everything is kept as clean as possible until it goes out in the field. And once it goes out in the field, we have uh, occasionally, there might get a spray of the garlic hot pepper plus uh, Bovaria sometimes. And we've got a guy with a backpack sprayer that's got this huge boom on it. Like, it was just ridiculously long, it's comical. So he, he can walk down without taking tractors or anything in the field and just, he can just go and mist Bovary over the whole place, you know, just before it starts to flower. So we, get, we try and keep out a bunch of, uh, you know, all kinds of biologically active inputs, but, at the same time trying to do more and more of them you know from within the farm you got some weird light thing going on there yeah trying to trying to get this going here and a little bit of a delay on the on the thing there um totally so, makes uh, you look like a white guy <laughs> uh let me see what questions we have here in chat here what's the easiest setup you recommend for a beginner growing a single plant for anybody for their first plant i would say just get a pot of soil you know and mix up some organic soil mix that's very light and uh, the lighter the mix the faster the roots can grow through it you know if you're planning on if you're somewhere really really dry sometimes a little heavier mix is nice because it you know it doesn't have to be watered as often but i find for most people their number one problem is over watering so if you make a light mix you'll probably be all right <laughs> that's the best mix, best i can tell you keep it keep it organic if you can get some nice super soil i'm sure you know anywhere you're allowed to grow herb nowadays whether you're allowed or not you still should but when you're selling super soil and I can't tell you which brand's the best or anything. I haven't tried any of them, but I'm sure they're all good. I mean, I really don't know. But I've always mixed it up myself. But uh, for your first plant, if you want to just keep it super simple, I would say buy a bag of super soil and get get a clone from somebody that's got good herb that you trust that they have something special. You don't want to waste your time growing garbage your first time out. You can waste your time growing garbage once you've grown all kinds of stuff and you're just constantly looking at new stuff. So then even if it's garbage, it might be interesting just to see that it's garbage, <laughs> but you're not broken hearted because if it's your one and only plant. You don't want to fuck around. You want to make sure you're going to have a nice one at the end of the cycle. Uh, we had someone ask, what's the strangest issue you've run into growing cannabis? you leave out the human angles <laughs> that's a good question that is a good question i think most of the strange stuff that happens growing cannabis usually has to do with you know the hassles around it due to the legal fictions that surround us 
and and you know, and if it's not them, it's the bloody thieves, right? So if if you know there's not a lot interesting happening when you're doing canvas, it's a very peaceful, <laughs> quiet endeavor. I think I haven't really run into. I don't know. Maybe I'm forgetting something, but I just find it zen. Like I just, it's like a meditation time just to be around all the plants. And yeah, it can be a lot of work, especially when you're harvesting and uh, planting is a lot of work and harvesting is a lot of work, but in between shouldn't be. That's the way I look at it. I like to set it up so that they don't require a lot of daily attention. I like to set it and forget it. And I know most people like to be in there every day and sucker everything. And it's like, you know, when I started growing, we just didn't want to get caught. That was the number one thing. <laughs> so it was plant to plant, cover, you know, I would dig a hole on the south facing slope and, you know, just out of the reach of the average hiker or whatever and gorilla plant. And I would put one to three plants in an area. And even if there were three, they wouldn't, you wouldn't see one from the other. They would just be close, but not that close that you could see one from the other. And I would dig a hole, fill it in with the good mix. And I would have no pot with me when I did that. No seeds or anything. I'm just an idiot with a shovel that likes to bury expensive soil in the bush. So fuck off. And then I would come back later or the next day with uh, the clones or seedlings or whatever it was and stick them in the holes. And then I would take the native soil and grab it and the grass I dug out or whatever weeds I dug out, I would just plant them back around the base of the plant and smooth it all over and try and make it look really natural. So it just didn't look disturbed because I would see other people's and you could tell like they dug a hole and dumped in soil mix then cover it back up. So that black soil just stood out like a sore thumb with the sparkly perlite and vermiculite in it. You're just like, you're not even trying to hide it. <laughs> Smooth it back over. And the, most of the drama was from just trying not to get caught. But I like to plant them. It was such a good deep hole and so much good soil that I'd give them one good water and I was gone. And I would, I would often leave those plants and not come back until the third week of September when I expected them to be ready. And I would come back with, you know, garbage bags and a hockey bag and cutters and take them down. So I would just plant them and then I wouldn't come back to them until it was time to harvest them. So I always kind of kept that in my head going forward is I'm, if I have to manage the crop every day, I haven't set it up well. If I've set it up well, I can just come back to harvest it. And that to me is just such a you know, a metric for efficiency. Can you plant it and just return to harvest it? You, you know, if not, maybe you couldn't do more to set it up better. Because if you have to hand water them every day, that's really labor intensive. And that's labor intensive sucks just from a labor effort. But when it was illegal, it was like, if I went every day, I would have got busted. You know, it just wasn't, that wasn't even an option. So if you can make a, enough water holding capacity in enough a big enough hole and and you're somewhere where it's not absolute desert like if it was totally dry i would never have got away with that but in southern ontario you could count on in the, through the summer getting rain two or three nights a week there'd be some thunderstorms and that so i would say you know i did have plants that i would go out and see if it hadn't rained in two weeks i would go out and see some plants and take them water but i had most of the plants i had were all a couple hours even out of town there i wasn't going back to them to water them. i was just going back to harvest them that was it plant them come back to harvest them
Awesome. Uh, any other uh, uh, breakthroughs or interesting things that you've noticed? Or actually, here's something. Do you want to do you want to touch on before we wrap up your uh, your um, seedless stuff at all, or and some of the work? Well, you're doing? sure. We've talked. We have talked about the seedless stuff and the fertiles. The thing that I'm uh, chasing right now, which I haven't done yet, but I'm working on, is uh, I would say pretty much just as interesting is with the apple mixes to get them to self-seed without pollen. So they you trick the you trick the egg into doing mitosis instead of meiosis. So then you have a seed form. It is a seed, but it is genetically identical to the mother, the same as a clone would be. So it's not like you're selfing it and mostly they'll be like the mother. This is the mother as a seed of itself. So it's a clone in seed form. So that's the, I think uh, there's not a lot of people working on that right now. So that's something that's fun to explore. And I'm sure I will have inspired 20 more of you to try that right now. And it's, there's different forms of the apple mixie, and the one that I have seen that we can uh, is already a done deal. I posted pictures of it. Is and that one's got bulbules. So instead of making a seed, it made bulbules. They're called, and they look like a little sprout, but the whole bud, instead of looking like a bud, it looks like a cluster of sprouts. But they're not, they don't have a white tail like seeds. They, they're like a curled up green ball. They're the size of a small pea. So they're a little bigger than your average seed. They look like a, they're like the size of a small pea and they're curled up leaves like this on a little stalk. So you can literally take those out as little tiny cuttings like from, from what looks like a bud. But those can be encapsulated as well. But the... That's not really the goal. That those were just flukes, really. You know, so you find bizarre mutations when you start messing with these things, right? The uh, but the apple mixes is, is really going to be a fun one if you can if we can make that work. Uh, I haven't seen it work yet in cannabis to seed, but it's done in other grasses. So it's it's the, the plants that it's most common in are grasses, and we call it grass for a reason, right? So it is a grain crop. And uh, I'm certain I'm certain we'll get it done within the year, I would hope. And uh, that'll be really fun because then it's easier than sending a clone, right? So if you have a clone only and say, you know, I had a delicious sweet skunk clone everybody's been growing that knows it from 96 it came out. 95 or 6, I think I'm going to go with 6. But the early 96, I think. I rem I'm just thinking of where I lived when I planted it and made it. Anyways, the uh, that one was a recessive plant and really delicious. Everybody, you know, with the liked it was welcome to a cutting and share. I say the seeds won't wouldn't give you the same plant. I want everybody to have this plant because I want to see that weed everywhere I go. So I'd give it to anybody that wanted it and say, just promise me you'll give it to at least six more people, you know, and get it out there. And this this uh, apple mixes gives you the ability to take anything that's clone only, reduce it to a seed form, and still send it out as that clone. It doesn't have 
the variation because there's no meiosis, right? It's the same plant through mitosis. So that's my new one for today. <laughs> that's so cool. I always, uh, always interesting to hear about uh, different mutations. Oh, I didn't realize my hit the wrong button there. Um, uh, always interesting to uh, hear about different mutations and weird stuff and uh, uh, super excited to see uh, more pictures and learn more about your your operation down there in Colombia. I know you got a, a lot of work and a lot of, uh, uh, no one's really else doing it quite on that scale. So I'm pretty stoked. It's fun. You know, I really appreciate your appreciation and look forward to having you down there whenever you can make it. Oh, yeah. Super we'll exciting. time it with we'll time it because that million seed search is an ongoing process, obviously a lifelong endeavor. The uh, but I'm trying to arrange an annual invitational that I call the Living Library, and I'm aiming to have it for every year at the last week of November, so that anybody that wants to anybody that's contributed million seed search but also any industry people or researchers that want to check it out are welcome to come down and uh we'll everything that we've got from across the spectrum in the gene pool will stagger the starts of them so that they're all finishing right around december 1st so that they should should all be time to start at december 1st awesome super stoked on that so all right. How do people find you uh, if they want to learn more about what you're doing? They want to try and get some some bud or whatever from you. Uh, <laughs> you can't get or, bud or from me, but I, I don't know. I started. I started. At, you know, maybe in the future, but at this point, I've got a website breedersteve.com that I'm just starting to put a little more content and updates on and keep people posted into what's going on. Awesome. Thanks a lot for having me, man. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for coming on and talking to us. We'd love to have you on again sometime. We'll do it, you know. Have a great day. Cheers. Bye, everybody. Well, that was awesome. Always love to talk to Breeder Steve. He's always got so many good things to say and uh, such cool stories to tell us about uh, all different types of funky stuff. I do apologize about the, uh, the Facebook beeps in the background trying to juggle... Uh, speakers and coordinate everything but uh, on the back end uh, uh, sometimes I accidentally have that open on the wrong section.